For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey, you guys. I like how you say co-host even on the intro to the show. Like you're not, you're not taking too much credit from us, even though we're actually right here and about to all talk. I believe in collaboration, Thank Aaron. You. <laughs> Thank you. Um, who'd you collaborate with uh, this week? This week is an interview I did with Maria Straczynski, who is the executive editor of Wired Magazine. We did it as part of the Wired 25th Anniversary Festival, 25th Anniversary of Wired Magazine that was out in San Francisco a little while back. Maria is the executive editor there. She previously has been the editor-in-chief of Pacific Standard. She's been an editor at The Atlantic at Mother Jones. She has a long history. We talked a lot about Wired, you will find, uh, because this was the Wired 25th anniversary, after all. Not paid placement. Not paid placement. Unpaid placement. Um, (laughs) And uh, it's maybe a little shorter than a normal episode, because we were constrained by the uh, live element of the time that we were allotted. Speaking of placement, at the uh, 25-year anniversary of Wired, was there some sort of um, like monument to your uh, story vanish? <laughs> Did they like uh, were you getting stopped in the halls? People saying Evan Ratliff, the Vanish guy. There's a lot of great stories in Wired over the years, Max. You may you may or may not know this that there have been other stories in Wired that are yeah. uh, widely appreciated. If you've got a great story, get it out there with an email newsletter from MailChimp. They help make this show possible, and we thank them for it. Now here's Evan with Maria Straczynski. So we occasionally talk to editors, but not not enough for the taste of uh, a lot of our listeners. Like A lot of our listeners want to hear more from, from editors and how they work. So... The first thing I wanted to ask was maybe if you could just lay out what you do as executive editor, because it actually varies by magazine, what an executive editor does, how much they touch the copy and et cetera. And so maybe you could just sort of give an overview of your role at Wired and then we go from there. Sure. What do I do as executive editor? It is different at every magazine. It's been different at every magazine I've been at, although I don't know that that title has existed at every magazine I've worked at. Mostly what I do is I have an overseeing role over sort of all of the operations with an incredible team. I'm not at the top of that. But the way it falls out at Wired is that we've hired this really great mix of people, like 
to run the website and to run social and to run all sorts of things. So I end up with the like incredibly lucky job of mostly being in charge of the long features and the print magazine, which feels um, like I live in the 90s. But it also feels really, really glorious in this day and age to still put together a print magazine um, and still mostly spend our, our team spends most of its time on the long, really deeply reported pieces like the kind of stuff you do. I want to get into sort of the role of those pieces in like today's media world a little bit. But first, I want to I want to understand sort of how you got to that spot. And uh, when people become editors as part of their career, it always uh, usually says to me that at some point they made the decision to forego the sort of ego route, which is the writer's <laughs> route for the person who actually cleans up the mess and makes things look good, um, sound good, read good, read good. There you go. Yeah, there you go. I'm going to edit that. That's exactly my point. Um, so let's go back to your entry point into journalism. Now, first of all, I understand that you come from a journalistic I do. background, which, some of which is in the room. Yes, yeah, some of which is here. Um, my mother has been a journalist for her whole career. My father was a photojournalist. So it was sort of in my blood. I knew I wanted to do something in publishing, and then I fell into magazines. And I'm going to admit that that is because my mother helped me write a letter to the first editor I ever worked for <laughs> right out of college. But that was a wonderful foray into magazine making, and then I realized I got sort of addicted to it. I actually stepped out of magazine making after about eight, nine years at this publication here in San Francisco and went to work for the government for a couple of years, which was like the best journalism education I've ever had. Mm. But I really missed just the idea of putting out a magazine or putting out stories and, and moving on to being something of a generalist or a dilettante. I realized after just over two years of working on the same subject in the government that we were inching change along. And I understood all that. But when you get back to a magazine, you get to work on a subject and dive deep into it. And then you move on to the next thing. And I really had become accustomed to that and missed it. What was the government job? <laughs> something that's the most fascinating job that nobody has ever heard of, which is I worked in public information for the Office of the Special Trustee for American Indians, which was not the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but it was a Department of Interior job, working on this enormous lawsuit that's basically known as the Indian Trust. And so what did you, you said it taught you a lot about uh, the media and the press. What did you learn? In that I role? learned that um, journalists almost always get something wrong. And even the best journalists with the best intentions can't always get context right. I had actually spent a little bit of time working at Mother Jones, went to the government to work on this Indian Trust lawsuit, which was an interesting dynamic, and watched Mother Jones actually cover. I mean, it had nothing to do with me going there, but they covered, they did a story on the Indian Trust lawsuit. And they, how do I put this? Um... I was talking to one of the editors there I knew, and I pointed out, like, you you know, you made this point, but the regulations actually don't allow that. And he said, like, nobody's going to read the regulations. But the regulations was how the entire trust was being run. We had to function off the regulations that were developed over very careful, deliberate systems that take a very long time. And so it was just, I really wanted some fantasy in my life is to set up a program where young journalists have to go work for the government for mm -hmm. two years. And I think those programs kind of exist, but it just showed you like the wonkiest thing in how systems work, how systems really function. And especially these days, like I just, 
gave a talk a week ago about this idea of we've all lost context, but context is the most important thing. And I know that from my time there. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I would have believed a certain line about even the Indian Trust or even kind of how Native American relationships are with the federal government in a way that would have seemed smart, that would have been wrong mm -hmm. at some level. Yeah, so then you, you got back to magazines. Yeah. And then what led you to, I mean, I think I first became familiar with your work as an editor when you took over what was then called Miller McCune yeah. magazine and then later became Pacific Standard magazine. So what prompted that move? I mean, at the time it seemed, even then, a kind of audacious idea of launching a kind of print magazine and trying to make a general interest magazine at a time when all the general interest magazines were kind of like, uh, yeah, actually that's out as well as we thought. It's funny. I was at the Atlantic and the reason I left, well, I was dying to get back to a subject that moved fast and the Atlantic had a position open and I strangely enough just applied for it, not through a personal connection and got the job, which was so amazing to me. Um, and I spent a number of years there, um, as their managing editor. And then like, I knew I wanted to get back to California. California is very much in my roots. And I didn't love living in Washington, D.C. And this job came up. Actually, the woman who was running it just asked me to have lunch. And I thought she just wanted advice on how a magazine should work. And um, then she came back and said, would you be the editor-in-chief? And here we have a budget and come out. And would you make a sort of Atlantic of the West? And you just can't say no to that, especially when you want to come home. <laughs> because that didn't exist out here. And so I had to go do it. I mean, it was a wealthy woman who lives in Santa Barbara who wanted to have a kind of public policy-ish Mother Jones Nation Atlantic of the West mm -hmm. out here. And so we did that for a couple of years. And you published a story there which won a National Magazine Award, mm -hmm. which you also edited, as I understand it, which I feel like kind of maybe prefaced in some ways your coming to Wired yeah. because it was by Amanda Hess and it was about... Basically, the uh, increasing awfulness of being a woman online, yeah. and, and especially in, in public ways, her personal story and also interwoven with other people's stories. I'm curious how that story came about. Maybe we'll start there. Okay. So Amanda had written this really fun piece. Amanda was in LA at the time, and I don't know if any of you don't know Amanda Hess as a writer, you should. She's wonderful. She's at the New York Times now. She does this wonderful, hilarious, and poignant sort of video series called Internetting with Amanda Hess. But she had written a little piece for us on the company, and I can't remember their name, but they just do crazy Netflix, like Shark Attack kind of Netflix stuff, just to fill Netflix with garbage. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Lots of things that you see in your queue. Um, and then we were just talking, and she said, hey, I had this personal experience. Would you ever be interested in this story? about like why it's so hard to be a woman and, and the harassment I get. And John Gravois, who is a co-worker of mine now, he and I were just like, yes, we want this story. Because Amanda has such an incredible voice. And she's a beautiful writer, but she's just really prescient and smart. And there were stories out there about what it's like to be a female journalist and the harassment that comes with that. But we just could recognize that Amanda had the voice that could maybe rise above. And um, she did that, right? Like uh, even in the time that she was writing the piece and before she delivered the first draft, other stories were appearing that were the same subject. Mm -hmm. But then she just delivered the story. And because she has such an accessible voice that is, honestly, she's just such a good writer and also a really wonderful self-editor. Um, 
she broke through. And the day we put that story up online, the next night, I mean, this is like little Pacific Standard that nobody really knew about yet. Here we are with 12 people for the entire operation. And Jeffrey Tubin on CNN that night is saying, I had no idea this was happening. And I was both thrilled and sort of so appalled, right, that he w would say that. Like, what do you mean you don't know this is happening? Like, you're one of the greatest legal writers. But then also, right, like, he doesn't know this is happening. And they were talking about it on a panel on CNN. And then that piece just kept growing and growing and getting more and more attention. Um, everybody covered it. Yeah. Which was, it really one of the best moments of my career. Yeah. And it was so stark, like you couldn't dismiss it. I mean, I think that was part of yeah. the problem was that it, this had been surfacing everywhere and then yeah. people could always find a reason to not listen. And yeah. that, the way it was told was very, it was very difficult to like avert your eyes right. from the, the seriousness of that yeah. problem. Um, which actually leads me to a cover story that Wired yeah. published that you edited also that I wanted to kind of maybe break apart. Maybe this is a good place to look at sort of how the editing process works and how these stories come about. So there's a story by Brooke Jarvis, which is in many ways also connected up with these yeah. same issues. Um, Wait, how I, one woman's life was weaponized. I'm looking at Vera because she top edited that. Uh -huh. Helped me with it. How <laughs> one woman's life was weaponized <laughs> against her on the internet. Yes. Yeah. Something of that yeah. flavor. Um, it was a cover story. Mm -hmm. So let's start with how does a story like that find its way into the idea generation phase to begin with? I'm really happy you asked me about that because so many of our stories come to us by you know editors and writers talking about story ideas and then the writers putting together a pitch which is itself a really difficult process and then they bring the pitch in our case to a pitch meeting that we have once every two weeks or so in this case this was something that i had been following and actually it did start because of amanda's piece there was a woman named danielle citron who was a lawyer who figures in amanda's story in pacific standard and Danielle, I stayed in touch with her because she was staying in touch with, like, she was very involved in this, the legal side and trying to pass laws on basically women's harassment and also, like, revenge porn mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So I'd, I'd been keeping in touch with her in order to sort of stay abreast of where things were and look for other stories to see if there was advancement. And she had put me in touch with a lawyer who was in Florida who worked for a law firm that happened to have a really really, really unique group that would do digital anthropology, basically dive down and figure out what for this kind of case. So she, this woman in Florida had set up a pro bono wing in the law firm. So they were doing forensics on for people who had been harassed. Yes. Online. Yeah, that kind of thing pro bono. So I had been talking to her and then she sent me a note and said, this case just got settled in Seattle. And the thing that was so unique about it was that this actually happens, what happened to this woman happens all the time, but it never goes to trial, so public records never come out. But in this case, they took it to trial because the harasser was just beyond uh, sort of terrifying and bonkers, and he kept turning everything around, and he just pushed it so far that they actually had to go to trial with a jury, which meant once that was settled, then it becomes public record and journalists can see it. Right. And so she told me that that existed. And I knew Brooke Jarvis, who lives in Seattle. And I thought, you know, Brooke, too, is a really, really lovely writer. And actually, on top of that, Brooke and I spent a lot of time talking about whether she should do this piece, because the guy at the center of it who was harassing this couple, the woman in, who's the main character in the piece and her husband, we just knew he'd probably come after Brooke. Mm. He was so vile. 
So then you get it assigned. And then, I mean, this is maybe a chance for a broader question, which is sort of what do you view the value of telling that story at the length that it yeah. that it was told? I mean, it's, it's an incredibly complex story because it's not just they're being harassed, but she had a relationship with the person and kind of broke it off. And then that's what started it. And then there's fake emails from the husband and you can't sort out what's true. Yeah. So there's a huge amount of complexity in it. And so what do you view the sort of value of telling that at 5,000 words or however long it was? It ended up being 8,000 words. It was assigned uh, at 5,000 words. Um, and it came in at 9,000. <laughs> That's how we do it. Yep, I think. <laughs> I mean, quite Probably honestly, this is a, an aside that's probably important for anybody who is a feature writer interested in it. You know, do I think it should have been shorter? Probably. It's hard when you're trying to, you're working through a piece and you get it together and there's so many elements to getting a story out and getting it done and getting it published and that often you look back a month or so later and think, maybe there was still some repetition in there. <laughs> but that's an aside. Um, the thing, it goes back to what I found so valuable about that piece, which was it was a window into something that you rarely see. And I wanted to make the point that this is happening a lot. This is happening to women and men and people of color and transgender, like this kind of stalking and harassment, as everybody in this room knows, it happens a lot. But we don't really get the full scale of it because it just gets settled. People settle and then often can't talk about it like or don't want to. Um, people don't want to have it rear its head again, mm -hmm. kind of harassment. So I think we just felt like also it was really well written which helps us decide to run a story longer because we know readers can stay with a story that is well written because it doesn't feel like eight thousand words it might feel like five thousand i thought words. it was only five i see perfect and it had so much action and so much sort of i don't know horror Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Evan and Maria on hold for a second. Tell you a little bit about a sponsor making today's show possible. They've been making a lot of shows for us possible recently. They are the fine people at Scoggin. Scoggin is a uh, watch and jewelry company. It's inspired by the people who become known as the happiest folks on earth. That's right, my friends, the Danish. When you take a closer look, it's easy to see how exactly the watches and jewelry are inspired by the Danish. Uh, Danish culture focuses on what's meaningful. Being part of a community, making time for relationships, living in the uh, in the present, living in the moment, as we all aspire to do and uh, struggle with. Uh, myself, uh, for example, uh, not very present. Uh, look at my phone too much. This is the thing that people have been telling me. If you are looking at your phone too much, uh, but still need to get you know uh, some text messages and such, uh, maybe you should try a smartwatch. Scoggin makes wonderful smartwatches. They sent us one. I've been wearing it around. It's uh, handsome, but it's intelligent. Scoggin products look right any time of day, anywhere in the world, now or 10 years from now. That's because simplicity isn't just beautiful, it's versatile, and it's timeless. Go to Scoggin.com to get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. That's S-K-A-G-E-N.com, Scoggin.com. Thanks to them for uh, sponsoring the show and also simplifying my life. Now let's get back to Evan and Maria. What's your sort of editing style with a piece like that? Are you a rewriter? Are you a suggestion 
I mean, I've had all types. So right. there's the person on the phone who just tells you things and then you're supposed to go figure it out. There's the person who writes, do it like this, but better. Uh, and then there's the person who just straight rewrites you at different phases. So I'm curious what your, if you have a philosophy that you apply to a story like that. I'd say 90, all right, 75%. <laughs> it depends on the story. Um, I've been all of those things. I think a number of us would say that. Sometimes a story comes in and it's really lovely and well done and you just think like if I just got on the phone with this person and point out that the structure is wrong here and the chronology is wrong here, ask them to change that and send them this sort of what is well known at Wired as the praise sandwich letter. <laughs> how wonderful something is, how much work it needs, how wonderful it will be. Um, then That's you can kiss of death is uh, <laughs> this is going to be great. That line is like the worst thing to receive. No, that's not the kiss of death. That's the, we have a lot of work to do. Yes. So that right. it's not the kiss of death. Right. The kiss of death is the story's killed. Right. Yeah. Um, so I've been all of the above. I mean, so much of that is really circumstantial. There are lots of pieces that come in that you've assigned it because it's the person with the right information who has the right access and they're a good reporter, but maybe not a terrific wordsmith. So you do more rewriting of that person. Then there's the other person that's really the lovely, lovely writer that doesn't have the structure and the all the reporting. And so you push on that. So it's sort of a three or four prong thing, right? It depends on what the piece is. Mm -hmm. I will say somewhat controversially, it's there aren't that many pieces that come in pretty clean. So <laughs> <laughs> that's only controversial to the writers. Yeah. When I became an editor, I quickly discovered that right. that's the case right. and also reflected back on my own previous uh, first draft submissions. Same. <laughs> um, but, so Brooke Jarvis, first of all, did she get harassed by the guy? She did not. Um, uh, there's an incredible research team at Wired run by Joanna Perlstein who did a fantastic job of keeping Brooke very protected. We took a lot of measures at Wired in order to kind of make sure our own security was kind of clamped down. And Joanna actually really helped divert the guy's attention to us instead of Brooke. Uh. You know, he threatened lawsuits and whatnot. And Joanna was brilliant at just, we answered a few emails and then he knockwood disappeared. Uh. <laughs> so. That story is, I mean, it's dystopian. It and it got me thinking about, I mean, I was just listening to an er earlier session that was sort of about, you know, techno-utopianism. And when I, when I yeah. worked at Wired, I think there was, a, there was a bigger component of, you know, change is good has always been one of the slogans of Wired. And mm -hmm. it's come up this weekend on the anniversary. And there was a little bit of feeling for like the big heavy hitting Wired story that it would be oftentimes optimistic and looking at something that might happen and describing it in detail and kind of like, okay, if it was a swing and a miss, mm -hmm. you know, if a few years later someone said, well, that didn't work out, you might feel a little sheepish about it, but you would say, okay, well, we're, we're focused on the future. That was yeah. kind of like the, the mantra. And I'm curious now, I mean, looking at the wired covers of the last year and a lot of the big stories, and of course the moment that we're in when it comes to Facebook and social networking and the elections mm -hmm. and everything else, how do you look at sort of like a big cover feature for Wired? Like what's the philosophy that now would drive that story? It's a sort of tough question in that I think the founders and early editors of this magazine have pointed out that they were smartly optimistic and also not unengaged. Um, 
society itself has taken a much more dystopian shift towards technology. And it's been something of a struggle. And I think we've had misses and hits in trying to bring Wired along and address those things. But, you know, at the end of the day, you want to be able to meet your readers where they are, but then also help them. Again, it goes back to my obsession with context. Um, and so a, a Wired cover story for us is, it's many things. Like Nick Thompson and Fred Vogelstein did this big dive into Facebook, mm -hmm. right? And that was a really, everybody was talking about Facebook, certainly after the election, somewhat before the election. And and still, it we just knew that we had to grapple with Facebook and and help readers understand what was really happening there. And so there's a lot of elements that change what a Wired cover story is, but we would love, like ideally, we'd love to have a story that gets a little bit out ahead of what our readers and what people are thinking about right now and helps them understand it going forward. Mm -hmm. And that is always going to be about change and about how technology and science is changing our world and how we're grappling with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, another frame for that, another way to look at that question is sort of what is the role of Wired in an era when everyone is focused on technology. Right. And even when I worked on the staff, like we would always sort of say that we were getting a bad rap for being that the magazine was too positive and right. people would complain about that. And we'd say, no, no, look at this story, look at this story. Right. But people weren't covering it in the same way that they're covering it now. Now everyone, yeah. the New Yorker is writing about Facebook. And so what do you, what do you feel like the role of Wired is vis-a-vis -vis the other sort of big general interest magazines, like say the Atlantic yeah. or the, where you've worked? I'd, I would like to think that Wired still has enough of a brain trust of people who have been at Wired before, who have run Wired before, editors who have worked there for a long time, who who understand technology in a way, and tech and science, in a way that people newer to the game don't. Mm -hmm. And I would like, like my ideal version is that we still are the place that, I mean, we still love technology. Like we are Wired, we love tech and we love science and we believe in it. Um, and I think we all want to find the smartest way to help people balance and understand that, right, we all sort of love tech, but we also don't know how to feel about it right now and don't know how to grapple with it. And we want to help people forward in that. We did this story that was a feature a couple issues back, and it's a big topic, but it ended up feeling like kind of a small story because it wasn't about Trump and it wasn't about Facebook. It was about this group of people who had come together to track where the warplanes were coming from when um, Assad would send out fighters to go bomb someplace in Syria. This group of people figured out how to use sound recognition and early warning signs and you know various versions of sort of Twitter and to get the warnings from being like 30 seconds to eight minutes. Mm. And they were saving so many people's lives by doing that. And the story didn't really hit big, right? It's not something that's on a lot of Americans' minds right now, but I go back to it as an example of what Wired should be covering, what people can do with technology and science that's very good, and that it's this is all part of our lives. And, and I would like us to be the place that is helping people understand that balance better than anybody is yet. Another aspect of being an executive editor is sort of running the staff or like overseeing... <laughs> A lot of people, and I want to ask you about. We had talked about this a little bit beforehand, the sort of diversity and gender ratios yeah. uh, issues, which are now like widely known in Silicon Valley itself. Right. And I feel like for many years, at least the public perception, and and I think the reality in many cases was that Wired 
sort of reflected that lack of diversity. And I'm curious, when you came in, you mentioned to me that that was something that you you were interested in changing, both in the reality of and the perception of. Yeah. So Evan told me a, a brief story that when he got there, like the whole line of people ahead of bosses were all women. So he just thought this is how magazines worked. <laughs> yeah, um, I was I, I was an intern and my the assistant research editor who I worked for was a woman. And then the research editor, the assistant managing editor, the managing editor, and the editor in chief. And I it was my first job in media. And so I just thought, wow, this is how it is. Right. <laughs> women run this yeah. run their media, as far as I can tell. Right. Uh, right. And yet like I just went and, and looked at this statistic this morning. It was about a year ago. We had this sort of kerfuffle that that put it in my lap with the issue of both women as feature writers and having enough women writing in your feature well, which is you know the bulk of the main part of the magazine, and then staff. Um, we had like now we have more than sixty percent staff as women, and the San Francisco office. The editor in chief, Nick Thompson, is based in New York, and so is Scott Rosenfield, who is the only other male manager at the place right now. And all of us in San Francisco are women. And so we have this every other week meeting. And it's really a nice thing to look around and see a bunch of women in the room. Well, let's talk about the kerfuffle. Okay. You want to talk about the kerfuffle. <laughs> sure. Describe what the kerfuffle was. Okay. So we run this thing in the magazine called Colophon. Do you want to describe I since could, you well, actually I worked on Colophon? I check the Colophon. I mean, the Colophon is a thing that appears in the magazine. It's tiny in the back that we would always assume that no one would really read. It's basically inside <laughs> jokes. It's like right. this issue is brought to you by, and then it would be like the music we stayed up all night listening to when we were closing the issue. And it's a tradition that, as far as I know, it goes back to the beginning of the magazine. And the entries were fact-checked just for yep. like spelling and everything. And it would be like people's pets, people's spouses, music, yeah. culture, Drugs, yeah. uh, whatever was involved, that's you could throw it in if you wanted to. So, so what happened was we, uh, the movie Wonder Woman had just come out or was coming out, and the call for colophon entries went around the office in an email, and it said, "What Wonder Women helped get this magazine out?" And so everybody, you know, people threw in lots of fun um, RBG and. There's just this long list of different, like Lauren Murrow, who's one of our staff editors, and. Somebody put Coconut the dog because we have a dog-friendly office and Coconut was this puppy that everybody was in love with. And so we just put together this little list of all the women that helped get the magazine out, or the editor of the Colophon did. And that went out and there's a woman named Christia Schwanden who's a science writer and she was in a meeting. She works for 538 and she was in a meeting and she was flipping through the print magazine and she saw that and then she flipped back because in the science writing community, it's well known that there are many more male feature writers than there are women being published in many magazines. Wired has a balance that I don't love. It's something like, I mean, depending on when you look at it, though, like a year ago, the number was like 75% features written by men mm. and 25% women. I don't know what time period that was in. And Christy took a picture of it and tweeted it out and said, look at Wired sort of demeaning women when all of the feature writers in that issue happened to be men. And so that bloomed in the science writing and journalism world and sort of went all over. And the New York Times even ended up yeah, they the story did about it. on Wired. And people were saying things like they put a dog ahead of the executive editor. How could they do that? Because Coconut was a few lines above me. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, 
I wanted to, I'm going to divert into stuff I probably shouldn't say, but I wanted to actually just take Coconut that morning and take a picture with her and tweet it out and say, oh, and we had said our overlord, Coconut, and say, like, we're all here listening to our overlord and just try to, like, take it back in a funny way. But there was some concern that maybe that wasn't a great idea, which I think smarter minds, maybe some of them in this room, convinced me of. So it just really, you know, it brought up the issue of why are not having enough female writers and female feature writers. But, you know, to me, what was so interesting about that moment, and we have actually since run Feature Wells with all male writers, which I don't love at all. I mean, there's all of us are aware of it and uncomfortable with it when it happens. And there's a lot of reasons why it happens. And I have run all female Feature Wells before. But the thing that that colophon thing really showed me is that there's this sense out in the world that like being a feature writer is somehow more exalted than being, you know, an editor or a support person on staff. And even inside Wired, there were mixed feelings about the fact that we put together that colophon. But and my response to it was, you know, we are 60% women in the magazine or give and take. Mm-hmm. And honestly, there are like, I still stand behind that colophon because there are women who sometimes maybe do even more work than a feature writer may do controversially. Um, and so the idea that that is the most exalted position is one I think maybe we should get rid of. Well, it goes back to the question of how does the copy come in? Like the idea yes. that there are these feature writers out in the world who are just delivering these pristine stories right. and then everyone in the magazine just sort of like gently pushes them right. to publication as so opposed we just to like, like dust, you know, <laughs> right. dust, dust, polish, polish, on it goes, which isn't at all what happens in a magazine. Yeah. And I mean, this is a question that I've uh, debated over the years because I was running this magazine called The Out of Us Magazine where right. we did super long features and we modeled our our process really on the process I knew from Wired. Mm-hmm. And we had fact checkers, we had fact checkers on our story, they still do. And I would have these debates with people about the necessity of that and sort of the value of that in today's world. And that kind of process to most writers who are writing for the internet <laughs> right. on a daily basis, it seems so precious and over the top to yeah. them when they encounter it, they just can't even believe I that know. it happens. And so the question is, can that process be sustained in today's sort of media environment that requires all of those steps? I mean, the the sort of sad answer there is that it's an expensive process. Mm -hmm. And that's where I worry the most. It's a vital process because at the end of the day, the reason I love the sort of deep, tough process that we put stories through is because what we're doing at the end of the day is making sure it is as correct and as contextual as it can be and as smart and is not saying something that shouldn't be said out in the world. Um, I'm I'm so lucky to be able to still work in a place that has the support to put a piece through that. You know, we do our back channel on the website does long form features much more often. And Mm -hmm. they also go through a careful editing and a fact checking process, but not as deeply as a print piece because we just it's still where the resources sit. And that's what worries me about the future is would you put the money into like hiring the fact checkers and hiring copy editors and having editors be able to spend as much time on a piece? Mm -hmm. It worries me because that's this is the world of like, this is newsy. We should get it out and up. Right. Well, that connects up with a question I was going to ask you for my own personal interest. (laughs) I don't know how much 
you sort of interface with the business aspects of yeah. the magazine. But I noticed, for instance, Pacific Standard recently has decided to yeah. forego its print yeah. version yeah. and go all digital. And that made me wonder, is that something that you see in the future for Wired? Or, what is, or maybe Every what's the case for the print magazine? <laughs> Um, every magazine I've been at, I've just sort of assumed a print magazine was going away in three to five years, and it hasn't happened yet, and I've been doing this for 25 years. The case for the print magazine is, there's a there's a number of cases. I think there's still people who feel like it's a joy to read a print magazine. I am old school in that it's a joy because I don't get distracted, as I do when I'm reading stuff online. I think it's still wired has this incredible reputation as a designed product that a lot of other magazines don't have. I was at the Atlantic and design was definitely not the main focus, but our form, our, our last editor in chief was Scott Dadich, who was a, like an incredible designer. And so wired had this beautiful reputation and the people who built wired from the beginning um, just really thought about the product as a designed product and as an experience itself. And I love that. And, I think there's still a world of people who really like that about Wired. And so we kind of want to hang on to that. That said, you know, I think everybody who works at a print magazine always thinks this isn't a thing that's going to last. I mean, I do feel like I live in the 90s a lot. (laughs) Well, I guess it's safer to think it and have it not happen than to not expect it and have it happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm still doing print magazines all these years. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. It was fun. (laughs) That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thanks to Maria for doing that with me at the Wired 25th anniversary. That was a lot of fun. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Tyler McCloskey, and our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We will see you next week. Before we go, I just want to tell you quickly, uh, one more time, about Scoggin. Scoggin makes these beautiful watches, jewelry. They've got analog ones, smart ones. It's all classy and minimalist and timeless style because it's inspired by Danish culture, which focuses on what's meaningful being part of a community, making time for relationships, living in the moment, being present. If you would like to be more present in your life while also knowing what time it is, go to skagen.com. You'll get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for their emails. That's S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. We'll see you next week.